0: Hi and welcome to Leitrim Daily. My name is Brefni Early and you are listening to episode 131 of the podcast. It is in focus today and I am delighted to say I'm joined by one of Leitrim's most esteemed citizens and we're sitting here in the food hub in Drumshambo, which the site and the business that's here has played a huge role in this man's life, both in his professional life, uh, working with Laird's factory and jams, and now as one of the brainchilds behind the food hub itself. NomaPartlin, welcome to the program.: Thank you very much indeed, Breffney. It's been an absolute pleasure to be chatting to you while we were setting this up. And obviously, we know each other going back a long time since yes, I was knee-high to a grasshopper yes. going to football games in the backyard. knee-high to the grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was not getting into the height issues here. Um It's small in stature, but big in, in terms of influence around the area, yeah. Noel. And of course, this Sunday, you are going to be awarded a very privileged title. Do you want to tell us what that is? Thank you very much. Uh, this Sunday, I'll be
1: installed
0: as, as Leitrim, person of the year, Leitrim Guardian Person of the Year. It's a huge achievement but absolutely well deserved and I think anyone who's listening to the show will see why over the next 25 minutes or half hour or so. Noel, you're a Drumshambo native and you've come, you grew up and born in Drumshambo uh, in the, the 1930s and 1940s. Do you want to tell us a bit about what life was like in Leitrim and in Drumshambo at that well, time? I, actually, I was born uh, in the Rotunda in Dublin because my mum was expecting
1: twins. My twin brother lives in America now. He's there for the last 60 years. And uh, after three days, we were taken to the Pro Cathedral and baptized and brought back to Dramshamba. Within three days, of our being born. So I've been here ever since. (laughs) You haven't stayed in Dramshamba ever since, though. You've been around the place. Well... I have, but uh, I've, I've lived in Lumshamba uh, and I live next door to where I, was, where, my, where I was reared, where the home place is, and that my son Ferda lives there now.
0: In terms of your own life around Lumshamba, tell us a bit about what your childhood looked like.
1: Well, it's so vastly different from what children of that age group today are going through. I mean, we had a fabulous childhood. My mother had a small shop. And we nicked more cigarettes and sweets as as the years went on and when we got to smoking. Uh, We had very good neighbours on the street, a lot of young people. There was at least 12 or 14 young families there on the street. Today, I'm nearly... I'm the longest resident on the street, but I'm I'm also the oldest probably, you know? But life life was good and uh, simple. And we had uh, circuses coming... Once a year to the Fair Green, which is only across the road from me, now Drumshamba Mart. We had, uh, later on then, we had films coming to Doherty's Hall, which is down on Church Street, four doors from me. Originally, it was Mooney's Hall. Joe Mooney's family were born and reared in that house. And uh, Ned McGowan, God rest him too, and Joe Mooney. Ned McGowan brought the first film that I remember to the hall, and we used to try and be on our best behaviour for the week so that we get to the film on a Friday night. And uh, Can you remember some of the films oh that you Oh, I might can. Remember? I can remember a lot of the um, Westerns particularly. John Wayne and... Oh, John Wayne was a big favourite. Audie Murphy. Uh, all of those. I mean, it was a fantastic time to go into the cinema and see all these figures dancing on the wall. My first cinema I went to, the first real cinema, was in Sligo. I had two aunts living in Sligo, and uh, they took us to the, myself and my twin brother, they took us to the Gaiety Cinema in Sligo. And it was the first time we saw a real cinema in action. And we were absolutely gobsmacked. It was really a great experience. And every time we went to Sligo, the first thing on our lips was, we want to go to the the pictures. Not the movies or films, the pictures. And they took us there quite often, and I think that was the first place I uh, got a, an ice cream cone in, in, in Breeze and in Sligo that had ice cream. And on the way up to the cinema, we'd go to Breeze and get the ice cream, and then down to the cinema for for a good evening's entertainment. And they were simple times, really, you know?
0: Absolutely. It sounds like a kind of idyllic, kind of almost out of a book from the olden days. Well, that's true. And with all the kids on my street here in Drumshambo and Church
1: Street, with all the kids that were around us, like we had the late Paddy Mack, for instance, was reared just down the street from from me. uh, And his late brother, Turney, both of them have since passed on. Turney passed away at seven years of age from meningitis, I remember. And uh, we had Jerry McGee, and his sister, Margaret, live in two doors from us, and Eddie Gannon's family, Miriam, who's still there, and uh, the rest of their family. And we just played, and we had a good time. Every day was an adventure. The only thing we hated was going to school in the morning. And then what we hated more even was getting there. Because school that time, when I look at my grandchildren who go to school here, school that time was tough. The teachers were tough. We had a very strict master. We had some very nice teachers, but we had a very strict master. I'm not going to mention names here now, but um, if you weren't on his side, you were offside and you were out. So at the age of, I think, 11, we were taken out of there and we were sent to, not because of the master now, but because we couldn't get on with him, uh, just because... My father and mother thought it would be better for us to be educated by the Christian brothers in Carrick. And we cycled in the Carrick every day for two years to the primary school in Summerhill. And we were taught there by the brothers. And whether it did any good for us or not, I don't know. But anyway, we went from there to St Mel's in Longford. I spent five years there. My brother wouldn't go back after winter. He left, and two years later he was in America. When I got out, I... uh, taught school believe it or not I was one of those and it's, it's peculiar that they were known as uh, junior assistant masters. I just had a bare leaving cert but they were very short of teachers because when women teachers married in those days they had to give up the job and there was a few vacancies going around so the first school I taught in was in Agraña and then I taught down in, in Orbel and in Bannadera and I taught him from Shamba for a while, but who we were known as Junior Assistant Masters, in other words, jams. Now that jams was to ben, was to actually dominate my life for the next
0: fifty <laughs> That's a years. Segue. It's quite
1: amazing. <laughs> but I was a jam teacher, and then I became a jam seller.
0: Tell us a bit about the jam, because obviously, where we are today in Shamba, here in the food hub, used to be Laird's jams. That's correct. And You took up a role with them. In at some point in the, well, the I, 50s. I'll just give you a bit of background as to how I came to be working for Lairds.
1: After um, I finished my teaching career, which wasn't very long, it was less than two years, I went to America with a school friend of mine from Fena, Hubert Reynolds, God rest him. And we emigrated in, in June of 58. I lived in Chicago for about nine or 10 months and then with another friend of mine from here, who lived in Chicago a few years before I got there, him and I headed off for um, New York for a long weekend in um, 1959. We drove to New York, and when we got down anyway, we met all our friends. There were so many people from around here that we knew. We said we'd stay. Now, we were both single, so we could stay. The man I'm talking about was uh, a fellow called Pat Mahan, quite a guy from Diffier. So we stayed in New York. And I met up again with my old school pal, Hugh Reynolds, who had gone to Chicago with me and came back down to New York as well. And we stayed there until December 1960. I got a call to the American Army. I was drafted, as was Hugh Reynolds two months later. And I was sent to um, Fort Dix, New Jersey, where I took basic training. Now, I have to say this much, that the draft was compulsory when you were getting your visa in Dublin to go to America in the first instance, you had to give an undertaking that you would register with a draft board in your local area within six months if you were between the ages of 18 and 25. So I didn't do that. I just enjoyed New York, enjoyed going to Jones's Beach and out to friends I had in Rockaway. My aunt in Rockaway said to me one day, did you never register for the draft? No, I didn't. Well, she said you're better you'd be deported. So I went down the next morning and registered. And that would be about August or September 19, 1960. And within a month, I got a call to go down to a place, South Something Street in Brooklyn. And that was where the
0: Army Induction Centre was. And was the draft compulsory, or was it a lottery that you put your name in and you might have been picked? Oh, no, there's no lottery. It, well, it was a lot.
1: The luck twen- being a late register for the draft, I, I hit the top very quickly. So they suddenly saw this guy had been in the country for 18 months and hadn't registered. You know, coincidentally, I, was, I got my call to the Army to go down for my medical the day Kennedy was elected president, not inaugurated now, elected. That was November 1960. And I went down and uh, went through the medical the whole day and, and went back. And I was called again on the 6th of December. This time I called for another checkup. Spent the whole day down there being examined. And when I came out of the last examination centre, I was told by some of the guys there that when you come out of the last room there, if you're going to the left, you're going into the army that night. And if you go to the right, you're going home. I went to the left, and before I knew it, I was on a bus with maybe 50 or 60 other uh, draftees heading for Fort Dix, New Jersey. Wow. And uh, I never forget that, actually. I, I didn't know what to expect. But we got to the the, the induction centre in New Jersey and we were sorted out and assigned different billets, etc. And then everything was fine for a couple of days. We had been outfitted with all our uniforms, etc. for the next two years. And then on the third day, all hell broke loose. The first sergeant came in, a young fella. He was younger than most of us. He came in, he was a career guy. I remember his name was Nicolini. I'll never forget it. He was an Italian guy. And he, okay, you guys, drop your cocks and grab your socks and get your nasty ass out of bed. This is about 5 o'clock in the morning. Jumped up, brought out to the parade ring. We were examined by different uh, officers, and eventually we were all paired off into different um, platoons. And I was sent to B platoon for basic training. And that's when the crack started then, because it was really tough. And it was a very cold winter, that winter as well. How long did you spend in the U.S. Army? I spent two years. But I spent eight weeks in in basic training in the middle of winter, the winter of 61, very severe winter. And that meant out in bivouac or camping out. And uh, it was hilarious in many ways. But I got through that, got back in, and then I was assigned... I rang my twin brother, who at that stage was in the Army himself, but he was in the paratroopers, the 482nd Airborne Division, based down in North Carolina. And I got his phone number and I said, listen, I'm here now, I've gone through BASIC, and they'll be handing out the various jobs, what should I go for? He says, being a draftee, he says, you don't go for anything, you take what you get. And he wasn't a draftee, he, was, he enlisted himself. So eventually he said to me, go for either company clerk or chaplain's assistant. So I went for both. And I got called to be a chaplain's assistant, which meant helping the officer priest that was there, a captain, a colonel. And uh, I was sent out to San Francisco to train for two or three weeks as a chaplain's assistant. And originally I was slated to go then from there to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas which is really the army penitentiary. I didn't fancy that idea, but if, for some reason it was changed, and I was sent down to what I would consider to be one of the nicest bases of the American army, and that was Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was a finance center for the whole army, but it was known as um, Uncle Ben's Rest Home because there were more civilians on the post than there were um, soldiers. And there would have been about maybe two or 3,000 soldiers on it. So I was based there working for the chaplain. Uh, he was a bit grumpy and all the rest, but we fell out after about six months because I, I took a long weekend in New York and made a week of it. And when I came back then, he said, listen, this is the second time you've done this. You've got to better, better find yourself another job here. So I knew a guy who wanted to become the chaplain's assistant. I got him in. And one of the guys who used to come to the Mass on a Sunday was a, a pro- golf professional, Ed Kinnitch, and still around, and I'm in church with him. Ed said to me, I need somebody down in special services in the army, in the, in, in the golf course. I had never played golf in my life. And he said, I'm going to put, your, put in for you. So I got assigned to the golf course. And that's changed my whole life. I, got, uh, I learned how to play golf. I very rarely wore a uniform, except on one occasion I was pulled up for not wearing a uniform and was given um, some light punishment, but I was until I left the army in December 62, I worked for Ed Kinnich at the golf course and it was fantastic. And being in the army, people said to me, when I say to people, you know, I uh, spent two years in the American army, and say, that must have been rough. I says compared to Two years, five years in St. Mel's in Longford. It was like a holiday. <laughs> so how do you end up back in Leitrim again? What, what, when did that happen? I got back to Leitrim then. I got out of the army in December 1962. Well, my mum and dad wanted me home anyway because they were coming out to see my two sisters and my twin brother who lived there and still live there. And they wanted somebody home to look after the little shop down on Church Street and look after the hackney car my father had. And that, was, that would be May or June of 1963. And it was the most, I had the most, they were gone for three months. And I had the whole place under my feet. A car, a shop, a bit of cash flow, and I had a ball. I'll tell you that. I went to all the dances in the big Mayflower Ballroom and Cloudland and Rouski and Christ knows where. And I came back, and then I met my wife, Margaret. She was working in Drumshamba as a hairdresser. And I met her, and I said to myself, I ain't going back. But I met Raymond Laird one day, the late Raymond, and he said, what are you doing with yourself? Well, I said, I'm due to go back now in September. Well, I'll tell you, he said, if you are still around here in January, i will have a job for you. And I started working for Lairds as a rep in, the, in um, January 1964. And I stayed there for nearly 30 years. You know, my, my first <laughs> I suppose my first 40 years well I was 40 age as I then, I was about 26, 27. And I got my job, car, and covered the West of Ireland. and then I was sent to Liverpool for a year to stir up some exports. And later on then, I was on the export market for them in the North Africa, which are mainly Libya, Saudi, um, Iraq and Libya in the Middle East, and Saudi Arabia. And I misvisited there for the next 20 years. And actually, in many ways, our success in the, in the Saudi market particularly was responsible for building this building we're in at the moment because we're at our... Actually, our best trying to produce what we were selling both on the home and export market, and we built this, this factory, which we're sitting in here today.
0: Tell us about this factory and the origins of where it came from. Okay, this
1: factory started, not this particular one, but the first Laird factory in Dramshambo was uh, opened by Caleb Laird, the great entrepreneur of that family. He was born in 1880, uh, down where Centre is now. That was their house. But the first Laird came to Tumshambo in 1834 and opened up a leather goods business down where the Millrace pub is now. Yeah, I'm sure you know where that is. I'm familiar, yeah. And <laughs> he worked there for a few years, and his name was John Laird, and his son was Glover Laird. Now, Glover then moved into a business in... Um, he bought the centre shop there. Can't say who he bought it from, but... He started his grocery business there, and a bit of a hardware business, and Caleb worked there. But Caleb had to take over the business at 20 years of age, because Glover went blind, and Caleb Laird was really the great entrepreneur, because the first thing he did was bring electric light to Dhamshamba. And he started the electric light uh, building in 1903, and it, it became a reality in 1905, and he supplied light to all his own um, concerns, such as the mill. And the, the jam wasn't there at that stage. That didn't come for another 30 years. Eventually, then he supplied the town with with electric light. And it was a system that, during the winter, it came on about 4 o'clock in the evening and it went off at 12 at midnight. And in the summer, it came on maybe about 8 o'clock and off at 12. But we had electric light here... Uh, from 1905 and you might see that big replica wheel down there in the square that's that's part of the commemoration we had there you know we have a plaque up down there where we had uh, Raymond Laird or Caleb Laird's daughter uh, came back and unveiled that plaque for us back in 2005 I think it was but Laird's anyway moved into milling and then into the built-a-garage and then in 1935, he had this idea of building a jam factory. And there was two ladies over at Ard at Carn, who made jam at home. There were two sisters, Miss Derbys. Sadie Derby and her sister, can't think of her first name now, she she eventually became a Mrs. Hall. And he brought them over as producers. And he also took a man from uh, Keeler's in Dundee in Scotland, great jam-making company, a man called Mr. Druitt, who, lit, who worked and set up the factory, worked for them for four or five years, and set up the factory in 1935. And the factory, you know, went through the war years and all the rest. Now, it's stuff so scarce, it was very difficult to keep it going. But there was, it was it wasn't difficult selling. If you had anything to sell that time, it was needed badly because that was the time, that the economic war in the 1930s for burning everything English but their coal, you know. And um, he set up the jam business, got started in 1935, and kept it going through the, the war years when, when, when rationing was a big thing, and uh, right up to the 1950s. Now, the, the brand name that time was Breffney Blossom. It's a great name. I love it. And that name, yeah, named after you, Breffney. Absolutely. <laughs> as the rest of the county is as well. Well, there was actually a, a competition held that time in 1935 for somebody to name, put a name for the jam. So he uh, had the competition, and a lady called Miss McTiernan from down around Drumcuren won the competition with her name, Breffney Blossom. And uh, she got the sum total of a fiver, which was a fortune of money that time. And that's how the Breffinie Blossom came about. Now, they kept that name until the early 1950s, and then they changed over to Bo Peep. And it was after Bo Peep then, Raymond Laird had come on the scene, Caleb's son. Because remember, in 1955, 60, Caleb was, at that stage, 80 years of age. But in good, in good health and worked down in the old offices on Church Street. But Raymond took over then, and then Raymond took, made the decision in the early 60s to get out of the wholesale grocery, to get out of the the, um, the milling, etc., and concentrate on the jam. And that's then when we got into the export markets. And our first exports, I think, were to Libya, above all places, because Libya was a pretty good market at that time, and also Iraq. And then sometime in the mid-'70s, I was advised by Khorus Thakthala, which is now Bordia, that somebody should go out from the company because there was a lot of business out there. The Saudis were very rich, but they had no production. And there was, was a great opportunity for imports, for people who were exporting stuff because they were importing everything. And I went out there and I met a man called Ali Bassam from a big company called Bassama Trading in Jeddah. And I did not know what to expect from him, but I was talking. Raymond had said to me, going out, you know, we'd have to get a price increase on that jam we sold the last couple of years now. We want up the price a bit. So when I went up, I started talking about price increases. And Mr. Alley, dressed in this immaculate white Arab uniform and his headgear, very clean-cut guy, and he said, spoke perfect English. He said, Mr. Noel, you didn't ask me what... I'm going to do with you next year. Well, I said I was getting to that Mr. Ally, or Mr. Salam. Well, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, now, And he pulled out this white sheet, and he threw it over in front of me. And I'm looking at it, and I didn't feel there were telephone numbers or what. <laughs> but I discovered anyway, there were 64 containers of jam, each containing 2,300 cases, and each case containing 12 jars. And that equates to about a million and a half jars. And I said, when are you going to take all this? I'll take that off you in lots of uh, eight over the next 12 months. So that was the reason we built the new factory. We couldn't handle it all here. And uh, that would be 1976, 77. And I had a funny experience, Joe, that I must tell you. There was no mobile phones. No faxes, no telexes, no nothing. Our number here in Drumshambo was Drumshambo
0: 3. And um, when I, which you probably shared with a half a dozen other businesses.
1: Well, we we, we had a straight number, but the the biggest problem we had, see, there were party lines as well. But we had this number, Drumshambo 3. And other than a telegram, it was the only way you could get a message through. So I said to Mr. Salem, I'll come back tomorrow, I said, I want to go back now to the hotel and ring my boss, Raymond Laird. And I said, uh, I want to have a chat with him. And i be back with a full decision tomorrow. So I went back to the hotel and I booked the call to the guy at the desk. Drumshambo, Republic of Ireland, number three. And I spelled it out for him and told him, he said, OK, sir. OK, sir, I waited in the room for an hour, nothing happened. I waited another hour, nothing happened, and eventually he rang back and he said, I'm sorry, sir, there's no such place, or no such number. Well, as a matter of fact, I said, that's my office number, and that's where I live. So I said, well, we're going to have to do better than that. So the next day, I tried again, and I asked him to get me um, the, Lo- the London operator. And I got to London, and I, asked for, I, I took over then, and I asked for Dublin. And of course, Dublin answered. And I said, Drum Shambo 3, please. Mullingar answered. Told them I wanted Shambo 3. Longford answered. Carrick answered, eventually. And then Maud Taylor, my old friend down in the post office, answered. And Maud recognised my voice. So this was the mistake I made. Oh, she says, Noel, where are you? Maud, I'm in Saudi Arabia. Oh, she says, you are in your She says, and she hung up. And there was I, high and dry, Waiting and waiting, it took me another day to get through. Now I know that Maud came down afterwards and said to Raymond Laird, "Where's Noel, my this month?" Oh, he said he's out in the Middle East. Oh, she says you rang and I cut him off. But I got through the <laughs> next day. I got, <laughs> I got through the next day to talk to Raymond and was able to. And he says, Raymond says, "Whatever you decide to do, do it." He says that is unbelievable volume for us. And I came back with that order plus order some Kuwait. Dubai and Jordan. I had a fantastic trip, and I remember we had our Christmas party in the Cartoon House, which was
0: uber classy at That's the time. That's a fact. That was the place to go, you know. That's where your grandkids are going now. But it's, it's... and, uh, but that to show you the
1: communications. was only in another year and a half that we got it, We got the uh, telex. Now the telex was very good. If you happened to be in your office when the telex went off, you could get in on the conversation by just saying, moment, please, and answer the question. And it was as good as the telephone, almost. And then we got uh, the fax. Fax machines, yeah. And then everything explodes in the 83, We got uh, the mobile started coming in, but they didn't work here for nearly four or five years. And I got a mobile phone in 1986, And I remember it only worked on the N4, and occasionally, but it would work in Dublin. And that was a big step forward. But how we did so much business, and we did over 6 million in turnover between the home and export markets in those days, with the world's worst communication system. And some of our customers used to get totally and utterly fed up trying to contact us. And you'd get telegrams in and all the rest. Well, eventually, it was Albert Reynolds actually brought in made phones available, and we only went direct dialing in this region. And This was 078, that was the first uh, direct dialing number we had. Now, there were people who were on tele who in the old system they had what they called party lines, and there were some great stories about people on party lines. There was one, I won't mention names here, but there was one man on a three party line, and he was having a conversation with a friend of his, a neighbor. And the conversation got fairly heated. But he knew that there was a third person listening in. And he decided to call on the third person to to say, am I right, John? And John says, you're dead right, Pat.
0: (laughs) But my mother talks about the same. My mother obviously was a doctor in Leiton Village on a party line. So the call would go, or it might be a business call for my dad or whatever. And call would go, and she could hear people clicking in and clicking out as they were oh, listening in gosh, in, in, other, in other uh, houses inc- down the road. It was incredible. But anyway, Laird's,
1: at that stage, Laird's now had, had gone in then to build a new factory, which we started building in 82. It was built by the Handley Brothers from Strokestone. We were actually working in it from June 83, but it was officially open in September. Fantastic opening. And... Uh, they were really in, 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 a, in a big way, but we, if you remember, you wouldn't remember, but I remember the interest rates that time were 18%. And we, we had got grants to build the new factory, but to, drawing down the grants was like pulling teeth. It was outrageously slow. And we ran into difficulties. And eventually the family decided to sell the business. And they sold it in 1988 to um, Larry Goodman. And Larry bought a with his company, Food Industries Limited. Now, the idea was good, but Larry was in the meat business, a totally different business than Consumer Foods. And uh, he held on to it for three or four years, and then he, Laird's had sold it as a going concern. But Larry sent in a guy then who actually reduced the employment numbers and made the factory almost inoperable. But the, he sold it on then to, to uh, Keypack another meat company in Cluny and they had it for three or four years and eventually they closed it and that was a sad day because here was this factory lying there and Sean Nolan and myself and Jim Mac- the late Jim McPadden he was a councillor and uh, he worked here as a rep we went chasing it but we hadn't the money to buy it it was impossible but I got a man in from Mullingar or Clunard. Aidan McGuinness and Aidan actually bought the factory and all the land around it and gave us a lease on it and this is where Orla came, you know Orla Casey yeah yeah Orla came in as our advisor we got grant aid from Enterprise Ireland financial the uh, International Fund for Ireland uh, we got grants all over the place we got over two, almost 2 million on grants and that helped us to start the food hub and that was 2000 and we, we started the thing in 2003 and we got our first tenant in here in the Finnish factory in 2007 and that was Lac Allen Foods which is now chef in a box and then the other thing we had going for us was the hospitality kitchen at the back here for training chefs and cooks but we didn't open it as that we opened it as a, a place for people young people who would like to start a business themselves could go in and develop a product, but that worked only for a short time because the people hadn't the money in the first place to bring the product to the market. They were able to develop it all right, but they couldn't bring it to the market. So eventually, Foss at that time took it over for ten months every year, and they eventually became Solace. And ever since 2007, this course is running there ten months every year, training chefs and cooks for the hospitality trade. But those two Lock Allen Foods and the kitchen were the only two tenants we had. The recession hit us very very severely, and we were we were hanging on by the skin of our teeth until about two thousand and eleven and Then a very good company who had been established in Akne uh Mcniff's Boxty uh run by Detta and Michael Mcniff, and now by their daughter um. Olf- if they came in, and they were a great tenant, because and still are. They be, they, they have quadrupled their business since they came in here. Uh, then we had the brewery come in, and then following them, uh, we had uh, the Shed Distillery, uh, Pat Rigney's Shed Distillery. The brewery was owned by Sinead and, and Marty Deegan, and they were responsible, really, for bringing in the Shed Distillery. Because Pat Rigney came down, saw what was here and took a fancy to it straight away and developed it into what it is today. And uh, by the way, when, I, when Larry Goodman sold on, I left the company and I set up my own company, Irish Food and Drink Exports, where I continue to work on the export market for different Irish food companies because of my experience in those different markets. But anyway, getting back to... 2011, things start picking up for us then, and we now have a full house of companies. We have um, Chef in a Box now, used to be uh, Loch Allen Foods, and they are doing extremely well. We have uh, Sean McLean's Cheese Hub, which is also trading extremely well. He does these organic drinks, or kefir, and various other stuff. We have uh, a visitor centre at the moment being built. You may have seen it at the front there, which should be open, please God, in the early spring, and which is going to make a huge difference and increase the employment rate in the distillery by at least another 20 people. At the moment, there are over 90 people employed here, and
0: uh, it just gets better every day. I was going to ask you that because here's a a site maybe that even as recently as the start of this decade, eight to ten years ago, it was kind of lying idle to a great extent. And now it's, it's a hub of activity on a daily basis. Oh, absolutely. And almost 100 people who gain yeah. employment from the building. Yeah. Well, we were very lucky to get through the
1: recession. Uh, the company is run by Tromshambo Community Council. Now, when I came up with the idea with Order Casey and Sean Nolan... We took it to the community council and most of them would not have been involved in in the food business, whereas Sean and I would have been. And in fairness to them, despite their their inhibitions about it, they took it on. And they have been running it ever since, very successfully. And um, it's great to see that kind of employment numbers here and only going to increase. And just as an aside, we are now negotiating the purchase of another Empty Factory, which is on the Dower Road, used to be BFN Foods. We're hoping to acquire that factory in the next few months because we have a waiting list of people for both here and the Dower Road. We got a grant for nearly a million euro last um, February to do that. And, you know, grants don't hang around unless you spend them. So we have to get up and running on this one. And if we do,
0: we'll have another food hub on the other end of town. What has the major improvement been in Drumshambo? Because everybody's talking about how Drumshambo has come on in the last three or four years, in yeah. particular, with the new Blue Way down at Acres Lake yeah. being a, a really big tourist attraction. Loads of new businesses, both in here and yeah. around the town. Yeah. Particularly, I'm looking at a, a picture of, of Ginny and Pascal down at, at their new bakery That's down right. at Acres Lake. What has happened to Dumshambo in the last decade? And when you are talking, you can talk about Sweet uranium on the High Street, all of those. Well, I'd have to
1: lay it, put it down to the community. Uh, there's a very good community here, and they all work well together. We have a fabulous charity towns committee. Then we have a we have a a committee that comes out of nowhere around the first week in December, and starts putting up the Christmas lights. These are all professional lads, and they, they do all the heavy lifting put up the lights put up the crib then they disappear and they come back then after the 6th of January and they take everything down but I think what George Shambo has is a great community spirit and uh, everybody pulls together which is great and there's, we have a lot of other plans and the community council are certainly to the forefront in, in all of these developments but I, I can't say enough for, for the, all the other groups in, in town and for the community itself. And I see this honour of patron Person of the Year, not a personal honour. I see that as, as I see myself as representing all these groups and the community generally uh, for what they have done because if, a lot of people remark how, how busy Drumshambo is. Now, there's other things we have to do in it too, but it's on the right track and it, it's,
0: it's great to see it so lively. In terms of this honour that is being given to you on on Sunday, the installation as Leitrim Guardian Person of the Year, uh, is it something you ever thought of when you saw other people get that over the years? Oh, Uh, I'd like that down the line.
1: Never, never, ever, because uh, I remember the first Leitrim Guardian man I I knew from Drumshambo was Joe Mooney in 1971. And I worked very closely with Joe on the Toastal Committee's well, when I say I work with him, he'd give me a call and myself and Paddy Mac maybe the morning the hostel was opening to put up the um, microphones and the speak- loudspeaker. Joe Mooney and Eva, God rest both of them, and they were fantastic. They were really community people. Joe actually forfeited a, a political career for being so Shambo orientated He could have he been, been a TD at some stage, you know? He did become a senator. He, Sean LeMass made him a senator in 1961. Because when I was home from the States in 61, Joe took me to Dáil Éireann, and he was the senator. It was my first time in Dáil Éireann. Little did I know that I'd spent a lot more time in Dáil Éireann with my late cousin Sean Doherty over another 15 or 16 years later. But, um, yeah, it was quite remarkable, actually, we are lucky here that we have that kind of a community spirit and uh, very supportive of each other and You know, you mentioned Pascal and Ginny's Tea House, you have uh, Sweet Geranium down the street here both doing very well There'll be new businesses hopefully up Scollins Scotland's for instance at the moment now will have another chemist in there in on their in their premises and the post office is moving down there after Christmas. So that's become more of a shopping centre down there, you know. And then you have Batty Centre, which is a great
0: shop. Let's talk a little bit about Sunday and about the actual, uh, the launch of the Leitham Guardian and the, yeah. the, I suppose, the, well, that takes the ceremony. Place, that
1: takes place now in the Landmark Hotel. It starts at two o'clock. The lunch is served at three, three course lunch. And, uh, There are some literary awards being given out by the Leitrim Guardian as well and I'll be installed sometime in the mid afternoon. I'd have to say a few words of course which I have to work on now over the next couple of days. Uh, Tommy Morton is the man that's organising it all and he's also the MC. Uh, And uh, I I have to say the Leitrim Guardian or something else. The present uh, holder of that office is Seamus O'Rourke And he'll be handing me the, whatever it is, a trophy, marking my Leitrim Guardian of the Year Award. And um, there'll be a few speeches. And I have a lot of friends coming from all my old family will be there. Unfortunately, my twin brother and my younger brother, Ronnie, are both both ill and they're not fit to travel, really but my, my, his sister-in-law is coming she's from Carrick and Shannon originally his, his wife is coming and then his, my nieces are coming but uh, we have a
0: lot of people coming so it should, I hope we see you there by the way <laughs> I haven't got my invite yet no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I take that as an invite I'll just, I'll just text I Tommy and tell him I'm on my way so
1: that, that's Sunday and then I asked your neighbour in Lutron Village who tells nothing but the truth Willie Donaldon what I had to do. Well, Willie is a farmer. Oh, Willie he said, you'll be at every ICM meeting in the country. Now, <laughs> so I don't believe half he tells me, and I have great doubts about the other half. <laughs> but uh, he means well, and he was a good man when he was leader man of the year back in 2001, I think. It's a while ago now, yeah, I remember yeah. It. No, I, I'm, uh, Raymond Laird was leader man of the year in 79, Joe Mooney in 71, Charlie McGettian and must have come in in the mid nineties.
0: Just I forget who else was in it, but I think Tommy Moore was in there himself. Oh, Tommy was himself, yeah. Yeah. Seamus O'Rourke, uh, Hubert McHugh. Hubert McHugh was
1: two years ago. Yeah. And now
0: it's Seamus O'Rourke is outgoing. I know Shane Flynn. Is it Shane Flynn from uh, who was involved with MBNA? He was one towards the end of the nineties. Shane. Shane Flynn, I think, is his name. He was an American based. Uh, Leitrim Roots but he would have been the key decision maker in bringing MBNA originally oh, to yes. Caracachana oh Shannon.
1: yeah that would be from, from uh, Yvonne Flynn's uh,
0: son well, I, I couldn't tell that you that
1: was yet. the late Shane Flynn's son yeah
0: Yeah. Oh, I knew him he was responsible for MBNA That's yes. right yeah so like obviously it's Leitrim person of the year yeah but I think you'd probably agree yourself that in terms of ni- 2019 you may not have achieved a whole lot in that particular calendar year. Really, it's a, yeah. it's a celebration of everything you've done well, for the development of the town and the county over the years. But again,
1: I have to emphasize, Bethany, it, it's, it's a, a celebration of all the success we've had in Drumshambo through community effort. And I, I don't like being singled out as being the, OK, I'm a representative of them, and I, I'll do my best to represent them. But at my stage in life now, it's uh, certainly challenging. But I'm looking forward to it in one sense. And my God, when Sunday is over, I'd be glad.
0: It's going to be lovely to have all your friends and family around and a little celebration of everything you've done. So I suppose on behalf of the people of Leitrim and particularly the people of this area, whether it's from Shambo or the immediate environs, and I include Leitrim village in that, uh, thank you for everything you've done on behalf of those people uh, over the years, particularly, I suppose, nowadays in terms of the employment and the opportunity that this building and the work you did in here has been a huge asset to the community. So thank you very much. Thanks very much. and I hope you really enjoy Sunday.
1: And I must say, it gives me a pleasure to come up here every day, even though I might be superfluous to requirements, but to come up here every day and see the activity that's on here. I don't know half what's going on now. My son Fergal is the manager, as you probably know. And uh, he'd know the ins and outs of the whole place. I'm just watching it as it develops, and it, it gives me great pleasure. And it gives me great pleasure to have been speaking to you for the last half hour or more. And thanks for coming out and taking the time no to talk to an old man. Absolutely my pleasure. I, be kind to the elderly. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen,
0: Noel, on that note, thank you so much for joining me. This is, of course, in focus here on Leitrim Daily. My guest today was the incoming Leitrim Person of the Year, Noel McPartland. Thank you so much to Noel. Thank you for, for joining me today. And the very best of luck to you on Sunday at the awarding of the Leitrim thank Person of Year. Very much indeed,
1: Bethany.
0: Orla MacNabola will be with you tomorrow for the What's On Guide. I will be back on Friday where I will be going through the sports across the weekend. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook or Instagram or wherever you do your social media, and you can of course get this interview and all of the others on our website at leitrimdaily.com or wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, we're also now on YouTube. Thank you so much, Noel. Thank you. Pleasure nice to look on Sunday. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming out.